0: Shazam 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 Hello everyone and welcome to the Shazam Cast, Earth's Mightiest Captain Marvel podcast. This episode is part seven of the JL May 2017 comic book podcast crossover. Each of the podcast hosts involved are taking listeners through the 12 issues of Alex Ross's 2005 limited series named Justice. If you haven't been listening to the J.L. May series, you really ought to go back and start from the beginning. Not just so you will understand this episode, but so you can enjoy, and perhaps discover, the quality podcasts who are contributing episodes to the series. The Shazamcast's Twitter feed has a listing of all the podcasts, and which episodes they are doing, a few tweets from the top. I'll also put links in the show notes for this episode. Go check those shows out. Don't worry, I'll wait. Okay, so I'm going to assume that you are up to date on the progress of the Justice storyline so far after listening to the previous J.L. May episodes. In the highly unlikely event you are listening without having caught up, here's the broad strokes of the story thus far. Earth's greatest heroes, the Justice League, have been blindsided by a sweeping conspiracy orchestrated by their greatest enemies. This conspiracy is carried out on at least two fronts. First, the villains have simultaneously compromised the heroes' civilian lives and attacked those heroes within the context of those lives, endangering not only the heroes themselves, but also their loved ones. Second, the consortium of villains have launched a massive PR effort built on using their own superhuman abilities to end human suffering caused by illness, disability, and scarce resources. Using the platform gained by their humanitarian efforts, the scoundrels raise the question of why Earth's heroes have yet to bring their powers to bear on improving the quality of life experienced by normal people in similar fashion, undermining public support for the Justice League. Along with their healing and ending world hunger, the villainous saviors offer mankind a new life inside newly created utopian cities. Here's what's going on with our heroes thus far. Aquaman has been captured by Black Manta and turned over to Brainiac, who has begun surgically cutting into the King of Atlantis like so much sushi. Wonder Woman survived an ambush by Cheetah, but not without bearing the scars of the battle. Green Arrow and Black Canary, attacked in their most intimate setting, backed into a successful defense against Clayface and the Scarecrow. Red Tornado was ambushed by a mystery assailant, leading to the android self-disassembling. Thankfully, however, his remains have been conveyed to Dr. Will Magnus and his metal men, who are in the process of putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Martian Manhunter had earlier been locked mentally into a fantasy of burning alive by Gorilla Grodd, but has now escaped. Flash, poisoned by Captain Cold, is locked into a never-ending race around the globe. Hal Jordan has been launched into the uncharted recesses of outer space via a boom tube controlled by Sinestro. He doesn't have enough ring energy to make it back to Earth. So how has the ring turned him into pure energy, so the ring can absorb him and preserve him indefinitely? Hawkman and Hawkwoman have been ambushed in their civilian lives by the twisted creations of Toyman. And finally, Superman has caught a beatdown from the combined forces of Bizarro, Metallo, the Parasite, and Solomon Grundy. But don't worry, just when it looked hopeless for the Man of Steel, Captain Marvel showed up, took out all four bad guys pounding away on Superman by himself, and save the last Kryptonian. You know, as per usual. And since this is a podcast dedicated to Captain Marvel, let me note that you should be reading this Justice series. And particularly, focusing on issue number five, if you're a Captain Marvel fan. There is great art there presenting Captain Marvel. But, even better, in story, he not only takes out the people successfully beating up Superman, but goes on to antagonize Batman in the Batcave, and also hurls Superman into the sun, for a kind of solar colonic. Let me pause here and note the obvious. Alex Ross really loves the Captain Marvel character, and I love Ross for it. Prior to the Justice series, Ross had placed Captain Marvel in a position of prominence in Ross's seminal Kingdom Come miniseries. Four years after Kingdom Come, Ross would lovingly craft one of the most beautiful, both in art and narrative, Captain Marvel tales ever told, namely Shazam! The Power of Hope. When Newsarama did their excellent oral history of the Captain Marvel character in 2011, they asked Ross, who they describe as a lifelong Captain Marvel fan, about his use of the character throughout his career, and I think it's worth reading a fairly lengthy excerpt from the interview in order to inform how Ross uses Captain Marvel in justice. So speaking of Captain Marvel, Ross says, In Kingdom Come, I wanted to do much the same as Jerry Ordway did at the time I started working on it, which was 1994 to return the hero to his historic visual roots and hopefully elevate him to a higher visibility within the DC pantheon if not also the overall pantheon of most important comic book characters positioning him at odds with Superman in battle in a final Ragnarok for DC's history seemed a powerful position for Captain Marvel and a poignant one. His being the force that Superman has to reckon with as the one person stronger than he is was a point I wanted to make in general about anyone that there is always someone stronger, faster, better than you, who you'll be put up against, no matter who you are. Captain Marvel's role there, though, was to serve Superman's storyline as a humbling agent meant to put Superman to his ultimate test. Power of Hope was a dream embrace of the original character's joy and characterization from the 40s. Paul Denny and I fashioned a fantasy about what actors, sports stars, and other celebrities have done to visit sick and injured children in hospitals having heard that some superhero actors like Christopher Reeve had done this before inspired us to the obvious fit Captain Marvel would make going to these places. As a very simple tale meant to be the complete contrast of all contemporary publishing, we wanted people to see the wonder of simple escapism as Captain Marvel embodied it. His physical sameness to my earlier depiction in Kingdom Come was meant to seem ironic, as I hoped to use the success of one project to lead into the other. At this point, I want to stop reading from Ross to let you know that he's about to spoil, in a very small way, but spoil nonetheless, some of the coming details in the Justice series. So if you're not familiar with how this storyline is playing out, and you want to keep it fresh, use the skip forward button on your podcast player to advance ahead about 15 seconds. Thanks. In Justice, I completed a bit of a promise to myself in embracing and depicting almost all of the key players in the expanded Marvel, meaning the Captain Marvel family, universe. By finally taking on the Marvel family, Black Adam, Savannah, and Mr. Mind, I felt somewhat fulfilled, even though it was couched inside of a Justice League tribute project. When one notices, a lot of Justice's story shows an intersection with the mostly non-JLA related Captain Marvel in fairly obsessive ways, having him save Superman in his moment of greatest need mirroring my splash shot of him doing the opposite in Kingdom Come, and both fighting and eventually trading places with Superman were all checklist items that served a certain agenda I was lacing through the series. If I wasn't going to do a full series with Captain Marvel, which I did know wouldn't happen at this time, then I would at least take my best shot to spotlight him within the confines of this larger epic. Alex Ross, you're the best. So I'm not surprised to find Captain Marvel holding such a critical place in the overall story of Justice, but I am deeply thankful for it. Returning to the storyline of Justice, we pick up with issue number 7 from October 2006. The cover is, unsurprisingly, quite beautiful. The image is cast in a gilded glow reminiscent of the golden age of Hollywood and depicts Hawkman fighting back-to-back with Hawkwoman poised to strike into a sea of Toyman's creations one of which Hawkman has torn an arm from. Reinforcing the link to Hollywood made by the color scheme, the only enemy on the cover with a fully rendered face bears more than a passing resemblance to the Oscar statuette given to Academy Award winners. Either that, or a golden G1 Transformer internally combusting. The story opens with Martian Manhunter getting his manhunt on, alongside Zatanna, who is present magically, if not yet bodily. They make their way to the last known location of Aquaman, and covertly enter the building. Once inside, the two speculate about Aquaman's health, or lack thereof, and John prepares Zatanna for the worst, which they discover. At the bottom of the two-page spread, where this interaction takes place, we get a really powerful piece of comic storytelling. On the left is a bloodied face of Aquaman, shown from the forehead down, with a chilling caption asking what has been done with his brain. Juxtaposed on the right is a crowd scene of upturned faces, looking into golden light, that upon turning the page, the reader sees is prelude to the ascent into one of the new utopian cities offered by the group of villains known as the Legion of Doom. The look is, I'm sure intentionally, quite religious, and calls to mind the Christian concept of the rapture, where believers rise into the air to meet the returning Christ. Powerful stuff, this imagery. And if the contrast between Aquaman's brutalized face and the naive religious ecstasy of those being taken to the, literally, heavenly city. We next see Brainiac, his chest covered like some grocery butcher in what can only be the blood of Aquaman, discussing with Luther and Grodd via hologram the next steps in their nefarious plot. We next see Grodd mentally looking in on Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and the civilian identities of Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. Next, Grodd names Jean Loring. Carol Ferris, Steve Trevor, John Stewart, and Dick Grayson. This last name takes us to a scene of Grayson walking beside Wally West, totally unaware that Solomon Grundy is glowering up at them from the sewer grate they step across. Leaving them for the time being, we see Wonder Woman speaking via JLA Skype to Dr. Magnus, who has reassembled Red Tornado. Red Tornado notifies Wonder Woman that it was Batman who destroyed not only his form, but the entire JLA satellite. Sitting unseen behind Wonder Woman in the cockpit of her plane, Batman warns her not to reveal his presence. The invisible jet lands in an arctic landscape, and the two heroes deplane in front of the locked entrance to Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Back with Hawkman and Hawkwoman, the couple is working out some aggression while they also work out where the attacks are coming from. Hawkman drops a bomb into an automaton's mouth, and the wing pair burst out of the building just as the shockwave finds them. Hawkman smashes something floating in the air, and we zoom in on his hand to find a strand of DNA. I mean, I don't think it actually is DNA. I don't even think DNA would look like that. But I have no idea what it is he found, and DNA was the first thing that came to my mind. The next sequence of events is maybe the coolest in the book. Superman has his mojo back after purging in the sun, and he, alongside Captain Marvel, set out to end The Flash's maniac run around the globe. I'm not going to step on the reading experience here, so suffice it to say that Captain Marvel figures out how to save The Flash, goes on and saves The Flash, and even gives Superman a part to play so he doesn't feel left out. It's pretty clear that Captain Marvel is the MVP of the first half of Justice. After the rescue, there is a lighthearted moment between Captain Marvel and Superman, about taking unfair advantage of an all-you-can-eat buffet, and we're off to the darkest section of this book, and one of the darkest thus far in the series. We see a montage of Perry White in his newsroom dealing with the aftermath of Bizarro's attack on Clark Kent. Black Manta raining I-beam death down on that kid who wears Aquaman's belt. I'm not sure if that is Aqualad, Tempest, Aquakid, or... We also see Solomon Grundy carrying off the limp forms of Dick Grayson and Wally West. From here we go, ironically, from dark to darker, as we turn the page and find ourselves back in Green Lantern's ring, as Hal Jordan works through some stuff with a simulation of Carol Ferris. There is some high soap opera drama here, as the ring turns. Hal confesses he's self-centered, just before collapsing into a fit of melancholy, as he contemplates the likelihood of his dying alone. This end, however, the ring informs him is, in fact, impossible. As Hal now exists as pure energy, Hal demands that the ring turn him back into a human so that the cold emptiness of space can take him. This, too, is impossible, as allowing Hal to die would violate the ring's essential programming. In a cold, inhuman voice, the ring's AI informs Hal that he will live forever, alone. Hal, struck dumb by the ramifications of his choice to enter the ring, stares into the void as this new reality fills his mind. This is some dark stuff, and it kind of makes me wonder if Alex Ross sort of hated Hal Jordan. I mean, he loves Captain Marvel, and thus Marvel takes a prominent role in this tale. What does that pattern indicate for the guy Ross has trapped in a green-hued purgatory simulation? Now, as the reader joins Hal in trying to come to grips with Jordan's fate, we have a hard cut back to Freddie Freeman and Mary Batson, who have made their way to the Rock of Eternity, trying to figure out what has happened to Billy. Let me pause here for just a moment and note that the Rock of Eternity has never felt so viscerally real for me as this interior shot. You can almost feel the heat of the torches as the children walk past them, and there is a palpable sense of danger as the lunatic face of greed looms over Mary. Now, as Freddie and Mary walk deeper into the Rock, back in the story, they converse about the nature of magic and the power of words. Freddy hears something and turns to look at Mary, but much to his horror, finds that she is held captive by none other than Black Adam. Adam warns the boy, if he speaks the name of you-know-who, he'll kill Mary, leaving Freddie to beg this monster for the life of Mary. The young lady's fate hangs in the balance, as we get an aerial view of the scene outside the Fortress of Solitude. Apparently the band is getting back together. Hawkman and Hawkwoman are there, Green Arrow, Black Canary, Metamorpho as well. They are joined by Ralph and Sue Dibney. Plastic Man, in blimp form, drifts over the crowd. And just below him are Dr. Magnus, his metal men, and Red Tornado, who are apparently responsible for the UFO culture in Alex Ross's DC Universe. There's an interesting moment where Red Tornado and Batman make up. Bat's apologizing for what he did while under Ivy's command. Tornado responds that he understands Batman's predicament as, quote, We are all slaves to our programming. And I guess we as readers shouldn't be surprised that the android subscribes to hard determinism. Flash, totally unnecessarily, rushes up to say he came ahead a few seconds to let the gang know Superman is on the way with hot cocoa and terry cloth bathrobes. There's just enough time for Flash to call attention to Diana's scarring from her battle with Cheetah. Thanks for pointing that out, Barry, before Captain Marvel and Superman show up. Interestingly, Barry isn't the quickest on the uptake maybe because he's been working on his cardio for most of this story, and he comes to the terrible realization that his loved ones are in danger because the villains have compromised the hero's secret identities. By now, Superman has opened the door, as well as launched into a pep talk about the need to become more than a team to overcome their enemies. So I guess Superman's going to have them do that thing where people cut their palms and then give handshakes to everyone in the group, so they'll be blood brothers or whatever. And it's at this point we get Ross's rendering of the Fortress of Solitude. And man, is it gorgeous. Again, you can just feel the atmosphere of the room with all of its light and grandeur. Standing in for the reader, Metamorpho's face clearly says, he just can't even, and I'm right there with him. I imagine this scene fades to black as Stand By Me plays softly in the background. Next, we return to Zatanna and Martian Manhunter, who are in the waiting room of Dr. Niles Calder, where they've apparently taken Aquaman for treatment. Calder, showing his electric charisma, chooses to lead with, there is nothing I can do for him, when John asks about Aquaman. Apparently, though, this was just a ploy to get next to Zatanna, as Calder follows up with clarification that Arthur is going to be just dandy momentarily. Robot Man, Alasta Woman, and Negative Man join the group, as Calder and Manhunter figure out that whoever chopped up Aquaman was looking for something in Arthur's physiology. They drop Aquaman into an aquarium, and Calder informs the group that Aquaman is apparently like a lizard in that he'll grow back anything he loses. Somewhere, far, far away, Wolverine feels an unexpected sense of kinship come over himself and wonders why. Proving Calder entirely correct, Aquaman grows his brain back, or whatever, opens his eyes, and calls for Mera. So apparently Aquaman's memories aren't stored in his brain, or his body can regrow the memories of the brain it regrows? Whatever. Mera, the turn of the page tells us, is in fact in real danger. Aqua Lad has been compromised and knocks out the Queen of Atlantis, kidnapping her child, and delivers Aqua Baby to Black Mantis, who just can't wait to tell Brainiac about his new toy. There the issue ends. The section of the comic with Bruce Wayne's files from the Bat Computer contains descriptions of Hawkman and Toyman. Hawkman looks super judgmental, and going through his story makes Batman consider whether or not his whole devote my life to ending crime, might be a giant mistake. Before deciding, nah, Toy Man's backstory becomes a meditation on the corrupting influence of crime, and after that we get some ads, one of which is an unfortunate reminder that the Trials of Shazam is a thing that happened in history, and a spoiler that in the next issue our heroes will be getting some help. So listeners, what do we make of Justice Number 7? Well first, there's a good reason why Alex Ross's art is so beloved. The hype, generally speaking, is real. Particularly, at least for me, are his facial expressions and interior landscapes. While his paintings clearly communicate a sense of unreality, nonetheless, there is a visceral connection with the story he is telling that transcends the normal comic reading experience. Second, this is my first time through the Justice series in a sizable number of years, and I really like Ross's Justice League. Now, just to own my bias... Part of that is probably that he treats Captain Marvel with respect. And I know that his love for these characters doesn't extend to some characters with lengthy runs in the Justice League. Sorry, Firestorm. Nonetheless, as an out-of-continuity foray, this story holds up and is an excellent example of playing out the concept of the Super Friends cartoon series for an audience with, at least some, grown-up sensibilities. Lastly, doing my first crossover podcast series has been really fun. There's a whole bunch of really passionate, creative podcasters out there. And for comic book fans who like to listen to podcasts, this is a great time to be alive. Let me encourage you to listen to JLA May from beginning to end and subscribe to the contributing podcasts. I think you'll find that the content the people involved in this crossover are churning out. We'll continue to present stuff to you that you'll want to listen to. Alright, that's wrapping up the Shazam Cast's coverage of Justice Number 7 as part of the JLA May crossover event. For the next episode in this series, you'll be heading over to the Comic Reflections podcast. You can find their episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Player FM. You can also visit their site at comicreflections.wordpress.com. I'll be tuning in, and I hope you will be as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Shazamcast.